This is the Futures Heritage Podcast. My name is Anki Petersen. And I'm Robin Hooks, and we are your hosts. In this episode of the Futures Heritage Podcast, we are going all the way east to Romania to talk with Miruna Andrea Gaman, who is a geographer turned into a heritage-loving historian uh, and works at Arctic Association, uh, one of the most visible Romanian NGOs in the sector. But first, all news. In this segment, we talk about current heritage news that caught our eye over the last few weeks. Um, Anki, I saw something in the outline which was slightly weird, so I'm going to guess you saw something. <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah, I really like uh, these segments that we do because I'm looking for the most quirky news of the week every <laughs> every time. Yeah, it's, no, it's noticeable. Yeah, uh, and this one is a, is a very quirky one. So this week I read about a project that has a multi-million euro funding from a European research fund. And this project is called Oderopa. And as you might guess, it's about smell. So this is what I particularly like. It's a project that is kind of focused on recreating the sense of the past. So sense of European past. So, so I'm guessing, for example, how the city of Florence smelled in the 10th century in May or something. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I find it really... <laughs> That's very specific. It's very specific, but... Um, it's really interesting. So the project is focusing on questions like what are the key scents or fragrant spaces and olfactory practices that have shaped our cultures? And also how can we represent smell in all its facets in a database? So this is kind of, well, relating to the more uh, sensory focus in heritage management. So, so heritage is not all about the museums and the books and the stories, but more and more also about the traditions, the clothes, the, the food, and now also the smells. So I'm really looking forward to see what comes out of this project. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really curious how, uh, what did they call it? An online encyclopedia of European smells. That's going to be very interesting. I have some like smell of vision ideas but i'm not sure how that works maybe it's a really good description of the smell <laughs> yeah. on my wikipedia i don't know it's also funny that they say at the end that they focus on the what you say the experience in heritage so they, they mention i think it's the jorvik center in york uh, jorvik viking center to give them their proper name uh where they kind of used smells already in the uh, in the museum and they want to kind of build on that, I think, and kind of balance that you normally, when, when there is something that you can smell in a museum, it's usually because it smells foul. So it's like, I don't know, Roman toilets or something, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I think that's a good rebalancing. I'm very, I'm just, I don't know. It's, it's weird. It's, it's the, the article on The Guardian is accompanied by researchers very looking very seriously and smelling archival objects which is funny of itself i'm just i'm curious what comes out of this yeah i'm also what, what you say about the smells in museums that, that are used right now it's often very like like these heritage smells they are very moldy and, and very unpleasant so i'm always very very reluctant to actually go smell stuff in a museum <laughs> Stick your nose in it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so this would be a nice uh, so. addition, uh, as yeah. you say, a nice addition to what is already 
there. So uh, yeah, what's really interesting is what he mentions about the uh, uh, the cultural change around smells. Tobacco starting out as this like exotic new smell which people liked, and then kind of slowly becoming something that I think most people uh, now don't like as a smell. The smell of cigarette smoke or something. That's an interesting progression to follow. Exactly. So if you're really into the, the sensory experience in museums, do stay tuned because in a few <laughs> years, this landscape will look a lot different. Yeah, exactly. Old Europa. So far for old news. So uh, let's get into our conversation with uh, Miruna. First, Miruna, Anki told us something about you already, but can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Um, how did you become uh, a history-loving geographer? First of all, thank you so much, Anki and Robin, for having me. So to introduce myself shortly, I am Miruna, I am 27, and I am currently based in the Romanian capital of Bucharest, which is approximately one hour south of my hometown of Plesht. I got in touch with uh, heritage during my university studies at the Faculty of Geography. I had really great professors there on the human geography and cultural geography part. Uh, so I did my bachelor's thesis on assessing the impact of UNESCO inscription of uh, two Saxon villages with fortified churches in Transylvania. And I proposed a cultural route for that site. So, Did you include smells? Uh, yes, well, those villages have a really specific smell <laughs> in the sense that, you know, there are those haystacks on the hills around the, the village and, uh, you know, there are lots of village animals and when you enter a 700-year-old Saxon fortified church, it does have its own distinctive smell from, from the wood <laughs> and the masonry and all. So, yes, it was a very sensory experience, though, to say on multiple levels, <laughs> visual <laughs> smells. Nice. So, yeah, I then decided to uh, pursue this part further. I uh, got admitted to a master's degree in uh, cultural heritage and cultural resources at the Faculty of History here in Bucharest. And, well, I got admitted first, I got a scholarship, and... Then I stopped my master's degree because I went through an episode of depression. I was very disappointed and frustrated with the lack of good professional opportunities in the cultural heritage field here. And it lasted for half a year, that episode, and I didn't do anything. <laughs> I didn't get my exams, like the final exams. But I had a breaking moment in summer two years ago and I told myself I can't give up until I will have tried everything and I turned to 180 degrees in that summer I started hunting cultural volunteering opportunities and I got involved with uh, loads of important actors on the Bucharest cultural heritage scene and also because I really love photography and photographing, uh, documenting heritage in this way. Last year, a local initiative invited me to take photographs of an exhibition documenting the architectural urban heritage of Bucharest from before the Belle Epoque era, so uh, before the 18th, 700s. 
and it was in one of the hottest cultural hotspots in the city. And also, after I had that breaking moment when I wanted to just try everything to pursue my dreams, I joined the Arha Association in late 2018. I, uh, I first was a volunteer for the Castle Break project, which is a cultural tourism project focusing on less mainstream areas all over the country. And this year I expanded my responsibilities. So just to make it clear, for the past four years, I've been working odd jobs here and there to pay my rent and my books. All the things that I do at Arhe are after 5 p.m. and during the weekends and when I take time off from office. Uh, and I will get back to this later. So this year I managed to write grant applications with the help of my lovely colleagues and we won some, uh, some funds. And I'm also very happy to be a part of the Field Heritage School team. And um, it, it's such a bummer that uh, the pandemic came and we had to postpone our, our wonderful program for hopefully next year. And also at the same time, I am very interested in civic involvement and participatory governance. And I have had several collaborations with uh, local NGOs in this sector. And it was really interesting because last year in one of these projects, when I went in a district in Bucharest and wanted to see uh, the um, locals' perception on the neighborhood's problems and whether they want to get involved in solving them and how, one of the three most pressing issues was the state of the built heritage in that area. And people were really sad and frustrated by how uh, old buildings were left to decay or when huge, shiny office buildings were built right next to 19th century houses. And it really struck me that, you know, people felt this problem as one of the most pressing ones. It was really surprising mm. to me. You say that it's uh, that the people ranked this problem, this kind of architectural or heritage problem so high, uh, and you were surprised by that. Do you mean like they ranked it high as a heritage problem so among other heritage problems or just for these people was this uh, i don't know the the major problem they identified was that i don't know jobs and then the second her this heritage specific one and then the next one was i don't know infrastructure no it was one of the most pressing issues in general because when i went there on mm. the field it wasn't a heritage research per se i had a, a set of questions and i asked them what do you uh, feel can be improved here what do you come across most often with? And the three most pressing issues were very diverse. I mean, there was this state of uh, the condition of the built heritage. And then the other one was something with green spaces, with public parks. They were complaining about the lack of quality public parks. And I think the third one was regarding some infrastructure. So they were quite oh, right. diverse. <clears throat> really diverse. Yeah, that's interesting. I wouldn't necessarily expect that, maybe, but... Yeah, it was also really surprising uh, for me. And uh, it was really cool that later on, they researched, like, a lot of people, a lot of respondents said they actively want to get involved in case there would be a civic initiative, a local group for the neighborhood. And there were several in-person meetings early this year before the, the lockdown. 
So people actually want to get actively involved in, mm. in the neighborhood cool. problems. Yeah. yeah, that can only make me happy. Nice. Every episode now we've kind of been discovering uh, uh, something about the heritage field with the people that we are interviewing and the countries they are from. So I'm very curious, can you tell something about uh, the cultural heritage field in Romania? Uh, what what does it look like? Is there a very strong government direction or is it more some uh, a place where uh, things mostly happen bottom-up? I would say that definitely it's bottom-up. The Ministry of Culture is severely underfunded. I don't want to say false numbers, but it was definitely under 0.5 of the GDP. And what really strikes me in the public discourse on, on cultural heritage in Romania, like from the top down, like from the main actors, the government and the Ministry of Culture, is that when they come out and they say, okay, we've restored this heritage site, we've done this project whatsoever, it seems very devoid of meaning in the sense that they don't say exactly why it matters and what's the impact on the local community, on the local economy, does it create jobs, does it create opportunities for young people, for other members of the society. And the thing with uh, funding is, I think, the most pressing issue here because, for example, with the projects that we're doing, so Arhead doesn't have full-time employees and there are very few cultural NGOs in Romania who have full-time employees. There are, of course, foundations and NGOs in other sectors who, who have full-time employees, but in cultural heritage, there are very few. And the main reason is because there's a shortage of funds. And when we do get funds, for example, the grants that we won this year, they're like 15,000 euros. And you only get them if you are able to prove that you have 20% of the grant you're asking for already in your bank account. I mean, you can't pay a team of people with a project of 15,000 euros per year. So this is why in this in the sector, like in the, in the NGOs, uh, it works a lot like project-based or volunteering. But from the civil society in the sector, there's a lot of enthusiasm and energy and willingness to, to do things. From the public institutions, I have to mention that the National Institute of Heritage has been doing an excellent job. And it's good that they're doing this, but at the same time, they're doing the best they can with the limited resources of like few people and not enough money. But there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of ground to be explored. And it, it makes it exciting, you know, and this is what, what keeps me going. Because, as mentioned before, I had a moment when I wanted to give up. <laughs> but this is what keeps me going. That that there is a lot of, of work to, to be done and uh, it has an impact, you know. Uh, the project that we, we, we've been doing, for example, the case study that we presented at the webinars with the heritage and communities that the, of the palace in Florest and when, when you actually see people interacting with heritage and giving it new meaning and integrating it in their daily lives, you realize that all your work 
and all your frustrations have been turned into something beautiful. I can imagine that's kind of really fulfilling to see when you've had such a uh, a rough start, so to say. And just to be clear, you you were talking about the the futures heritage online uh, webinars. Yes, exactly. What I wanted to ask, I can really imagine that you know being able to present that to European audience and being proud on that project is really enforced as well by, like I said, your kind of rough start in the uh, in the sector. It also sounds to me, but correct me if I'm wrong, that it's really a difficult sector in Romania to break into. Is that a correct assessment? or? Yes, at least in my experience. So I've been trying to find a full-time heritage job <laughs> for more than two years. And every time I tried to, like at the end of the month, I would have been able to pay my rent and my food and that would be that. Mm. So if you're just starting in the field, it can be really hard. So you either have to make a compromise on this and, you know, get some other side jobs or other projects so that you can get to a level where, you know, you, you have some savings at the end of the month. Yeah. And this is really sad because there are a lot of young people with potential. And here I can also say about the humanities in general here. I mean, Romania has a very strong IT sector which has been booming in the past years and there are very very good salaries in in that in the tech area uh, in the banks and stuff but for humanities and for culture i know a lot of people who have oriented themselves to multinational companies even though in during their bachelor's studies they were just you know the absolute best you know but you you get your diploma you want to go out into the world and you you want to do research, but if you want to do research, you have to, you know, go chase various uh, side projects so that you can make a more decent mm. income and, and stuff like that. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that this is universal because, you know, there are certain doors in the, in the system, so to say, and, but, you know, in a sense, like all the planets and stars have to align for you as a young uh, professional who come out of the banks of the faculty to get a good paying job in the cultural sector here. Yeah, I can imagine that that is very, uh, well, that is not encouraging if you just chose your, your line of work, your passion, that you are studying your master's and then uh, you realize that, well, there's only a handful of people that actually have a full-time job in this sector in my country. I can imagine that that is quite a setback. Kudos to you for fighting back, so to say, finding your way in, in uh, well, in a, in a different way, trying this uh, this bottom-up approach. Yeah, you know, it, it's really hard at times because I have to admit there have been moments when I wanted to give up because, you know, since I've been doing all this cultural heritage work in my free time, you know, I'm a very kind of eclectic personality. I have many hobbies. I love baking and painting and photography and etc. So a lot of times I've been feeling that I'm missing out on things because of this. And I also don't believe in that thing with if your job is your passion, then you're satisfied. Then you should be satisfied with any income. I really don't believe in that mentality. Mm. I think that everybody deserves having a, a well-paid job 
and you know passion doesn't pay the bills nope that's true, true. that's very true <laughs> but you know uh i i felt the impact of what i'm doing and i've learned so much i've met such wonderful people both within the arhead team and within uh our network so so far it when i add it up the result is good the result is positive <laughs> and honestly in a way i allow myself to be optimistic because i i feel that there is an energy coming from from the bottom up and if that energy reaches a, a critical mass i i am sure that we will be able to influence the way things are done here and this brings me back to my master's uh, degree which i want to further continue with a phd degree i want to choose a heritage site in romania where there have been projects going on and investments like restoration or social entrepreneurship developed there and assess the the social impact of all these investments in heritage and this would be basically the phd and the master's thesis i wanted to to be the methodology so basically a chapter for the thesis because i want my paper at the end to be an argument and to be used in public policies well this is why heritage matters this is what we need to do and so far there hasn't been done such research here and then really using that research as a a policy tool basically yeah. exactly having a practical utility okay so so we can uh, call out to our uh Listeners who are uh, <laughs> having their eye on, on uh, funding opportunities, please do uh, forward them to Miruna. <laughs> she can use them. Yeah, especially you, like European funds. <laughs> exactly. Well, it sounds quite familiar. Well, the need to kind of prove the worth of heritage projects and also monetizing them. I think that is something that, well, kind of happens everywhere when it comes to uh, also giving out funding for projects. You really need to kind of already beforehand prove what it will be worth. Um, so I guess that research that you are mentioning, uh, that will definitely be useful in this sense. Yeah, I, I really hope so, because as much as I love research for the sake of improving knowledge, I feel mm -hmm. that here we have uh, so much work to do that this research for the sake of improving knowledge should be slightly parked aside and focus more on applied research. Like what can we actually do with all the information that, that we're gathering and with everything that we're measuring and quantifying? Do you see a danger in over-focusing on like, I don't know, the social effects of heritage or something? I'm a historian. Uh, in terms of heritage, I have like an, a basically inherent interest in something. And then that's why I might think that a heritage building, let's say, uh, should be preserved because it, it's a piece of the past that won't come back again. And it's interesting and it, maybe it's, it's beautiful in, a, in and of itself. Do you think there's a danger in offering up these kind of policy justifications for heritage that you lose like the more i don't know inherent is a wrong word i think because nothing is inherent everything is kind of value added by us to something else how do you look at that so i chose to focus on the social impact because uh, the relationship between people and heritage has been fascinating me since i went on the field 
for my bachelor's thesis five years ago. And well, at first I wanted to do a big thing that would also encompass the economic impact and etc. But it was too large. I would have needed the whole team. I couldn't do it all alone. I believe in the power of dialogue and empathy. And I know they are hard things to do properly. I can totally understand that, especially when there are multiple stakeholders with divergent interests on a particular heritage site. But I really think that if all the actors involved in managing and bringing a heritage site back to life will be brought to the, the same table and they will all feel that the other one is listening to them and taking their perspective into account. I think that middle ground can be found between, let's say, conservation and repurposing something. I think that the danger would come if we don't have a holistic view of, you may focus on the social aspects, but you mustn't forget about the other ones as well. So this mm. is why uh, I think it's always uh, important to have multidisciplinary teams when you put everyone together and discuss about the future of a heritage site. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, th there is danger, but it can be managed. <laughs> we just no, 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 we just don't need to rush things <laughs> and uh, just you know listen to one another. At the end of the day, I, I think that's the most important thing to do whether it's heritage or not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Uh, and then not forgetting a piece of the puzzle or only focusing on one thing, um, like you said. Yeah. Is that also something that uh, attracted you to the future's heritage? Because, of course, uh, it's, it's a network mostly of well, cultural heritage professionals, basically. But it is quite diverse in the sense that, I mean, you are also a trained geographer. And we have all different kinds of people uh, working on all different kinds of topics. Um, kind of, well, they, they are thrown together in, in a team in the future is heritage, in the projects that the future is heritage does. Yes, ever since I was little, I had a really wide range of interests. You know, I would go from reading literature to reading about science and about animals and, and whatnot. So I really want to gain a good understanding of the world and how things work. Of course, at the same time, I know that expression, jack of all trades and master of none. <laughs> and I, I, I really don't want to become that. But I, I really like learning from people and learning from connected fields. Like, for example, when I'm working on our project, and we have to do the budget and stuff. I really ask a lot of questions to our financial manager so that I can understand how a budget for a cultural project works and whether it's realistic or not. So this was, this was just one example. So this is why I applied for the Capacity Building Days event in 2019 in Athens, because I felt that it would provide me with such a great, the range of people to know and I remember I had so many discussions with people working in a museum or with people working on archaeological fields or with people who were working with grassroots heritage organizations so it's it's really wonderful and 
it's really wonderful to, to have access to all these complementary young professionals and to the, all these complementary perspectives. And you were talking earlier about how the Romanian heritage feels really bottom-up uh, and how that's growing, you think, you feel, and that there will be one a, a moment when there's what you call, I think, a, a critical mass um, where it kind of breaks through into the more like maybe more political or more policy making uh, areas and is, is taken up as a, a more important subject. How did the pandemic affect that? Do you have a feeling for it? I mean, we're still in the middle of it, of course, but I can imagine that doesn't help such a, such a groundswell. Well, for Arche, it was quite difficult in, on several projects and good enough for others in the sense that the Castle Break project with cultural tourism, we had to cancel all the tours for the whole year. Mm. And it was one of my favorite things to do to see how people react and get compelled by a heritage site when they were visiting it for the first time and, and stuff like that. I think it was half and half in the sense that a lot of projects had to be parked and postponed for a later time, while a lot of them managed their way through, through online and when their number of cases were lower, there were like open air events with social distancing and all the necessary measures right. for liters and liters of disinfectant. <laughs> From what I have noticed, I, I haven't like quantified it and stuff, but my general feeling is that people haven't lost connection to the heritage mm. organizations and the public that was interested still wanted and was asking, when will you get to do that event and will you adapt that to the new situation and, and similar things. So I, I don't think the momentum has been lost. I really mm. don't think the momentum has been lost. And my feeling is that next year when hopefully we will have enough people vaccinated or immunity or whatever, there will be a kind of cultural hunger, so to say, you know, because I think that Without culture in general and cultural heritage in particular, we are barely surviving and not actually living. And once this whole thing gets back to a sort of more manageable stage, we will have that hunger for actually living. So basically what you're saying is that the kind of the impulse is still there in terms of the, the enthusiasm for heritage, even though it was really limited during the pandemic. So last, I don't know, 10 months. Where are we now? Time's a flat circle. Uh. <laughs> yeah, 10 months. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I have the feeling that around me, the people have maintained their enthusiasm and momentum. And when things will get back to normal, they will be like all up for exploring and enjoying it. But I, I have to say that at the same time, it's like the lucky and the privileged people who have managed to enjoy culture and cultural heritage in the pandemic. And I really hope that, you know, this pandemic has offered a lot of space for reflection and introspection, I think. I think it gave us space to see exactly where we stand as society, what are our values, what we want to focus upon. And 
like what do we need in times of crisis who are the people that mm. uh, keep the things going and how do we maintain our mental and physical health in, in a crisis in a in a pandemic and as uh, crazy as this year was and as much uh, suffering and distress it has brought i think we owe it to ourselves to learn as much as possible from it and to realize exactly what kind of, of society do we want to build and what values do we want to uphold and how can we get involved as, as citizens and how can we do things better. I really think that we can see the silver lining in, in everything, but mm. it's, it's really, really hard work. Yes. <laughs> and it's, not, yeah. it's not always pleasant to try and draw lessons from dramatic events. No, true. But if you look uh, into the future, maybe uh, speculate about a post-pandemic world, what what kind of specific changes would, would you like to see in the sector? I really think that without culture in general and without cultural heritage in particular, we are only surviving and not actually living. And the fact that a lot of cultural events and exhibitions were made available through online mediums in this pandemic and the degree to which people accessed them, I think it showed how much they matter for our internal balance, so to say. So I really think that on one hand, this could be a perspective towards which we could go that, hey, we really need to properly invest and have enough people working in these sectors because in terms of crisis, they can be really soothing and help us navigate. This is for the cultural heritage sector and on society as whole. I really think that this pandemic has given us an opportunity to become kinder and more empathetic. And I, I, I think that that's that's one of the main lessons we can learn and it can also be applied in heritage, I think. Nice. Yeah, but of course, uh, what I'm saying right now is the kind of more optimistic scenario in which we, you know, get back to our true selves and realize that we don't need that much consumerism and whatnot. At the same time, I have to admit there is a real, I think danger is kind of a big word, but there's a real possibility that we just get back to how things were before because substantial change is hard to implement. It takes a lot of time, lots of effort, and we might not want to do that or be able to do that. I mean, we have to look at all possibilities. But I think at, at the end, if each of us does what we can do, in our powers, I think that little by little from everyone, we will manage to do something great and something constructive and meaningful. Maybe this is a good moment for the question from uh, Carlotta. Our, our previous guest, uh, Carlotta, left basically you this question, which was, um, how can people and organizations increase youth involvement in cultural heritage? Kind of relates as well to what you said about the future and how, how you're hopeful about that. But uh, Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And um, I, I've been thinking a lot about it because my friends, uh, my closest friends don't have any connection to the sector whatsoever. So I think there are several layers on which people and organizations can increase this. So on one hand, there is the why. So 
we have a duty as cultural heritage professionals, I think, to discuss with the people around us and tell them exactly why it matters and use data-backed information. For example, I know that there are several studies from the UK that measured that the NHS uh, saved uh, around 200, almost 200 million pounds of medical services because people were getting in contact with, with heritage. Uh, so it has health benefits, then it has economic benefits, uh, and it can foster communities. It, it can do so much, but if we don't explain it to the people outside the sector, we won't be able to make them care about it. And I think that increasing youth involvement in cultural heritage does not have to be limited to the volunteers or the professionals. It can be uh, enthusiasts as well. That's one thing. On the other hand, I think that uh, now I get back to the salaries, to the wages, because if you, you don't make sure that the people, the young people who want to become part of the sector will have a decently paid job. They will turn to other sectors which are well paid and will pursue their passions in their free time as much as they can. I, I would also like to add that also the power of personal example, I think also works really well. And I don't believe that when you talk about your involvement for a certain cause or that you donated time, money or something for uh, things that you believe in is virtue signaling. I truly believe in the power of personal example and that when you talk about your involvement and your passion for a, a sector or a monument or a social cause, it can inspire other people. To sum it up, I think that the answer to the quest this question lies in data-backed explanations to the people who are not initiated with the field, uh, making sure there are enough funds so that people can become full-time professionals in the field, and the power of personal example, just be able and have the courage to openly share our, our passion and our involvement and yeah to me that's not virtue signaling and that's something the 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 third one you mentioned the, the the personal example is something like the youth might do more easily in on a wider scale through social media for example or through <laughs> i don't know through uh, platforms that we ourselves are creating at this moment Podcast. <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We, um, of course, now have the follow-up for you. What uh, question do you have for our next guest? So my question would be, how can we make the people who are not in the cultural her heritage sector feel connected with it? That's an interesting question. So what I just realized whilst Anki was uh, um Asking you the question is that on paper, we don't have a next guest yet. Uh, on paper, this is the last episode of this series. Uh, but we will have uh, a next episode with only Anki and me. Um, and cheese discussing fondue. And possibly cheese fondue. I'm hearing just now. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, just looking back on the, the conversations we've had and um, yeah, what stood out for us, uh, what we remembered about them, what kind of similarities and differences we saw so i think we'll try to answer your question in that episode the both of us 
I'm really curious to hear your answers because um, this is the kind of question that I like asking to basically everyone from the field that I meet <laughs> because it, it's really the kind of the, an obsessive question for me. You know, how mm. do you bridge the gap between people and cultural heritage? Because if they don't feel that emotional connection to it, they may only get involved up to a certain point. I mean, on an intellectual level, you might know, yes, this is important. It matters. I can donate time, money and whatnot to this to this but i think that 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 inner spark and passion keeps you going even when, when things get rough and i'm really happy that i managed to find again that spark two years ago after i had wanted to give up yeah that's great to hear and it's great to describe it as a spark as well <laughs> it's really positive exactly yeah and we're happy that you found your spark too <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't have had this conversation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for your time, despite all the technical difficulties. Uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll edit all those out. That's, that's all going to be fine. Uh, but thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed this talk. And I hope it's not too much of a mishmash of ideas <laughs> and This was the Futures Heritage Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast channels. Links can be found in the show notes. This podcast is supported by Dutch Culture, Center for International Cooperation.